activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. So now we'll launch into things. So again, thank you for joining our course entitled Incorporating Genomic Testing for Prostate Cancer into Your Practice. I'm Joseph Wagner. I'm at Hartford uh, Hospital. I'm the Chief of Urology there and the Director of Robotic Surgery. As far as my disclosures, I actively consult for Medtronic. And in years past, um, I worked and did some work for Genomic Health, which is now Exact Science with Oncotype. I'd like to introduce our faculty, Matt Cooperberg from UCSF, Dan Lin from the University of Washington, and for any of you on Twitter, you're probably already aware that David Penson unfortunately has COVID, uh, but happy to report that he's recovering nicely. So we'll try to stand in for him as best we can. So course outline, I'll be providing a quick overview and background. Uh, Matt will be talking about pre-diagnostic markers along with germline testing. And then Dan and I will talk about genomic testing at, at diagnosis. Dave Penson would have been speaking about um, genomic testing post-radical prostatectomy. Like I said, I'll step in for him today. And then we'll have cases with audience participation um, with Dan. But along the way, we're also going to have an index case. And instead of using the uh, audience participation poll, we're just going to do a raise of hands, which is obviously a, a little quicker and easier. So don't be shy. So background. First of all, the difference between a somatic and a germline mutation is germline mutations are inherited from your folks, and you can pass them off to your children. A somatic mutation occurs in an organ, in your prostate, in your colon, etc. Genomic tests examine somatic mutations in the tumor itself. Sometimes we refer to these as molecular tests or assays, and this is where it gets, I think, a little messy, because we're calling all these genomic tests, but they're really very different. Some of them aren't looking at mutations at all. Confirm MDX, for instance, looks at hypermethylation. There are various protein tests, et cetera. It's just a nomenclature that we've thrown on them, but I think it's important to understand the differences. There are genomic tests, molecular tests available everywhere, every step along the pathway from a man being concerned about prostate cancer to having advanced disease. And for the purposes of time in today's course, we're going to take you from screening up to post-op treatment, but we're not going to talk about advanced disease. So going back to biochemistry 101, DNA gets transcribed into RNA, and then RNA gets translated into protein. And we have tests available at each step along the way to help us answer some questions. So for instance, at our place, we use IMPACT with this genome sequencing from Memorial Sloan Kettering. A lot of the tests you're going to hear about today, like Oncotype, are RNA-based. And then there are protein-based tests out there like Promark, P10, et cetera. So why do we need genomic testing? Well, we all know that we use these various tools, tables, nomograms, et cetera, to try to differentiate our patients from who needs treatment and who doesn't. And if they do need treatment, how aggressive do we need to, to be with that treatment? But we also know there's significant rates of upgrading and staging as well as downgrading and staging. And a recent study from European Urology showed that about 30% of men that are favorably intermediate are actually upgraded or upstaged at surgery. So back when the NCCN brought up the idea of, of keeping an eye on favorable intermediate risk disease, I went back and looked at 3,700 of our radical prostatectomy specimens just to see if that seemed like a very good idea. 
And when I looked at our favorable intermediate risk disease, again, about 27% are upgraded or upstage, just like that European study we just showed. And this was the risk for low, or, or the rate for low risk. And then for unfavorable intermediate risk, it was 48.5%. So our sort of thought on this was, you can keep an eye on these guys. They seem to be more like low risk than unfavorable intermediate risk, but time will tell. When we look at the NCCN guidelines, the arena I think that genomic testing plays the highest role after diagnosis is for low risk and favorable intermediate risk disease. So it also plays a role in any of the other categories, except for perhaps, in my opinion, very low risk. And when you look at the, um, the uh, risk stratification based on the biopsies, these are the three that we chose to talk about today. And the reason we chose to talk about these is I think they're the most common, number one. And number two, they're recognized by CMS. But as you can see, there are others that we're not going to be discussing today, such as P10. In the post-prostatectomy setting, um, then it's Decipher and Prolaris. So which test do you use? There are many pre-biopsy choices that Matt's going to be talking about, and the sequencing is very nuanced. I told you the reasons that we chose these three tests as far as after biopsy testing. And then I think you need to decide which endpoint makes the most sense to you. What's more useful for you? To you. Do you want to know their prostate cancer-specific mortality if they try to keep an eye on this? Do you think that adverse pathology is a better outcome? Is metastasis a better outcome? And then I want to stress that there is no best test. So I took 22 men who had two tests, really their choice, and I compared them. And they agree most of the time, and you hope they would if they're good tests. And what we found was that Prolaris was a little bit more apt to tell us that the man should be on active surveillance, and the other two a little bit more apt to tell us that they should have definitive treatment. But that doesn't mean that one is better than the other, right? I mean, we, we, we're trying to all figure this out, I think, with every patient we see in the clinic. And then I think you need to look at the, the literature. Obviously, you use ev evidence-based medicine to make your decisions. And then look at your prostate cancer volume. So are you comfortable with one test, or do you want to change with the clinical um, situation? So our index case, so now we're going to go with the show of hands. We have a 62-year-old man, PSA 8.2, repeated 7.8 with a free PSA of 20%, no past medical history. His brother had a radical prostatectomy at age 65, mild lower urinary tract symptoms, good erectile function. So what is your recommendation? So transrectal ultrasound and biopsy, you think he deserves a biopsy with or without an MRI? Would you get an MRI and let that guide your decision? or did you get one of these adjuvant tests? So, how many people would proceed with a biopsy with or without MRI? How many would get an MRI and then let that guide them? And how many would get an adjuvant test? Great. All right, I'm gonna hand over the podium to Matt. So the question is a perfect segue into the first part of the, um, of the next part of the course here, uh, which is really this question about pre-diagnostic markers, <clears throat> excuse me, a growing number of tests that we have to help make decisions for men with elevated PSAs um, to help decide who does in fact need a biopsy and who does not. Um, I have worked with a number of the companies whose products we're going to be talking about today. It's really important to frame any conversation about any of these tests, whether we're talking about MRI or the other liquid tests, 
from the framework of what we already know about screening. And the reality is for all the controversies and for all the maligning of PSA over the last decades, it is probably the best biomarker we've ever had in the history of oncology for screening in the liquid state. We just haven't used it well is the problem. PSA is a beautiful test to rule out prostate cancer for a young man around 45 to 50, we can basically write off prostate cancer for the next 20 years in terms of risk, and we can do that for about 75% of the population if we use PSA well with a threshold of one, not four. But that's of course not how it rolled out. When PSA was introduced because of the way it was initially studied, it was used mostly, tested mostly in older men who had a lot of BPH, which is how we came up with this 4.0 threshold. And the result is that we wound up over-screening older men, we under-screened younger men, and of course, when we found prostate cancer, we over-treated the low-risk disease and under-treated much of the high-risk disease. Despite all that, we drove the mortality rate down 50% in the PSA era, and at least half of that decline is pretty clearly attributable to early detection and better treatment of screen-detected cancers. So if we use PSA better, you know, more prevalent early baseline testing, we could continue to drive that bar down and avoid some of the over, continue to work on the overdiagnosis problem. So the bar, the, the point of all this is that the bar is actually relatively high to do better because we already can do quite well. And just to stress this point about the thresholds when you test early, there's been a number of cohort studies now um, which are, you know, these are not randomized trials and therefore they are not included in the AUA guideline uh, or the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, but they are reflected in the NCCN and the ACS and many of the others, uh, which have looked at, again, early baseline PSA testing and really looking to predict what happens over the long run. Uh, these cohorts are summarized in a paper by Mark Preston a couple years ago, which focused on the uh, Southern Community Cohort Study, which is on the left here. Uh, this is a heavily African-American cohort. The Physician's Health Study, of course, out of Harvard um, is largely Caucasian. And then the Malmo Preventive Project on the right is the original one from Sweden, uh, which followed men um, who donated blood in 1982 and were followed for 25 years and then had their PSAs checked retroactively, retrospectively. And the amazing thing is across these different cohorts, different racial backgrounds, different time periods, different countries, the results were incredibly consistent, that the median PSAs um, by age were really pretty consistent across different contexts. So the median in your 40s should be about 0 0.7, 0 0.8 by the time you get to your early 50s, around 1.0 by the time you get to 60. Um, and over the long term, the men who are below the median and even men who are below the 75th percentile have basically no risk of dying of prostate cancer, out to 25 years of follow-up. Now for a 40-year-old, that's not to say you're done for life, but we can clearly back off on early detection. Notice 4.0 is nowhere near this slide, okay? And men who in this age range, if you have a PSA even one and a half, you're in the top quartile. By the time you get to two, you're well into the 90th percentile. So it's a real reframing of the conversation with primary care. Now we cannot talk about screening with a PSA threshold of one if we're going to take everybody with a PSA of 1.2 straight to biopsy. And that's where all the markers come into the discussion. Um, so this is the growing list. It's getting harder and harder to update the slide every year because there's too much stuff to cram onto it. Um, but for every decision point now along our continuum from maybe should we even check a PSA depending on how you choose to interpret the SNP uh, test that I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, on through whether to do a biopsy, whether to treat, and how to treat advanced disease, we've got almost more markers at this point that we know what to do with. Um, and imaging, MRI and PSMA, PET-CT, very much play in the same space, and a lot of the same considerations apply. 
So focusing on this pre-diagnostic space, should we do a biopsy? If, we, if the biopsy is negative, should we do a second one? We've got a number of tests to discuss now. To be clear, you know, this is a course on genomics. The, the blood tests are not technically genomic. They're, they're proteomic, looking at PSA isoforms, but there's so much similarity in terms of study design and utility. Um, I will include them in this review. Now, to emphasize the point again, um, and we'll make this point both for pre-diagnostic and post-diagnostic, to do, you know, to, for a test to have value, it has to improve on a multivariable gold standard. So if we're talking about post-diagnosis, we've got to do better than all the clinical information available on the chart at the time of diagnosis. Same thing is true pre-diagnosis. So we have to beat not just PSA, but some multivariable tool, whether the ERSPC or the PCPT calculator. Um, and it's really, really essential that these be done well. And there are sets of criteria which are increasingly enforced by journals when you submit articles on on markers really defining how the cohorts need to be set up, how the markers need to be set up and, and assessed. Um, and again, of course, it hopefully goes without saying at this point that the goal of screening is not to find prostate cancer, it's to find potentially lethal aggressive prostate cancer, which is usually defined as Gleason grade group two or higher, understanding, of course, that many Gleason grade group twos these days are not much less indolent than the grade group ones. So the tests to consider before first biopsy, in the blood we have 4K and 5, which are both PSA isoform tests. Um, subset tests in the urine, we have PCA3, uh, what's now called my prostate score, select MDX and EXO. And again, multiparametric MR is very much in this space. And the point I was making before about the improving on a multivariable model, this is the PCPT risk calculator, um, which is based on the, the original PCPT data. Um, it incorporates pretty standard information, PSA, age, race, DRE findings, and family history. And, you know, the reason I always highlight this one, I really like the smileygram. I think it's a very good um, uh, bedside teaching tool. It's about the only website I ever actually go to during clinic where I have to break away from Epic um, because it's very quick to use. And this really does resonate well with patients. And a point that Ian Thompson made when they first published this years ago at this point is that you can show two men the same 7% chance of a high-grade cancer. One may choose to get a biopsy, one may choose not to get a biopsy, and those can both be perfectly good decisions as long as they're well-educated decisions and the man has had the opportunity to make that choice for himself. Um, so in terms of improving on these, on these models, most of the markers we're going to talk about have been shown to improve on a multivariable model, either that PCPT tool or the RSPC. So 4K and 5 have both been out for a long time now. They're both looking at subsets of PSA. Uh, 4K looks at, they both include PSA and free PSA. Uh, 4K also incorporates intact PSA, which is another isoform, and HK2, which is sort of a cousin of, of PSA. PSA is HK3. Um, HK2 is another predictive marker. Uh, another another calicrine, uh, both involved with uh, semen maturation. 4K, well, one thing that separates the two is that 4K does incorporate the clinical information in its report. So it incorporates the age, DRE findings, et cetera, and gives a percent likelihood of high-grade disease if we went forward with biopsy. The PHI, uh, which is, again, PSA, free PSA, and minus two pro-PSA, uh, you really just get a number. Um, so maybe slightly less easy to interpret or less easy to use as a, as a teaching tool at the bedside, although it is less expensive. Um, these are really two of the only tests that have actually been compared head-to-head -head in a single cohort. Now, this is a study out of Sweden by uh, Tobias Nordstrom and his colleagues a number of years ago now, and they frankly perform quite similarly. So we typically look at these things in terms of the AUCs for predicting prostate cancer diagnosis or high-grade diagnosis. So again, all cancers on the left, high-grade cancers on the right. The AUCs for the base model, which in this case was PCPT, was pretty poor, only a little bit over 50, uh, but incorporation of either one of these 
um, subset tests. Uh, Drovia, you see, is up to about 70. We can look at this graphically. <clears throat> you want to see the R these ROC curves up and to the left. Um, and there's very little difference between the, phi, the model incorporating the phi and the model incorporating the 4K. Uh, so PCA3, moving into the actual genomic tests now. PCA3 is a full-length uh, mRNA, which is identifiable in the urine. It does require a DRE to get the RNA out into the urine. This was the first uh, genomic urine test which really hit the market. It never quite took off originally when this came out about 10 years ago, over 10 years ago now, partly because um, it was always, it was initially studied with a single threshold. It doesn't really work very well with a single threshold. There was a lot of gray areas. Um, and it also was never quite calibrated for aggressive prostate cancer. The best study here um, from, uh, from John Way and the EDRN looked at PCA3 with two thresholds. And just like PSA, you know, negative predictive value below one is extremely good. Positive predictive value over 10 is pretty good to find a prostate cancer. Same thing here. PCA3 below 20 has a very good NPV. Uh, PSA, PCA3 over 60 has a very high PPV. Uh, positive predictive value, and in the middle you have a gray zone, and that's just the reality of the, the biology. This has now been added to PCA3 as the Tempest 2 erg as another full-length mRNA in the urine. Um, this was originally developed by Scott Tomlins at Michigan, originally called the MIPS score, the Michigan Prostate Score. They now dropped the I, and it's the My Prostate Score, which is now being marketed. Um, this improves on PCA3 alone and is now calibrated for prediction of aggressive prostate cancer rather than all cancers. Um, the graph in this paper was these decision curves rather than um, AUC curves. These you want to see up and to the right, and the, ideally you want to see as much daylight as possible uh, between curves across the whole range of threshold probabilities. And you can think about those as patients' comfort level with making the wrong decision, with undergoing an unnecessary biopsy or missing a cancer. Um, and you know, again, you can see quite, you know, quite good separation between the curves. Um, with the incorporation of this marker compared to the PCPT model alone in the darker orange. Again, does require a DRE. Uh, the final post-DRE urine test is select MDX. This looks at two different genes, again, full-length mRNA in the urine, HOXC6 and DLX1. This has also been around for almost 10 years now, not quite yet, maybe seven, eight years. Um, this was uh, developed originally with uh, two cohorts from the Netherlands, has now been validated in the VA and elsewhere. Um, and this was the first one to really double down on negative predictive value. So the way, you know, the, the actual performance characteristics across these tests is frankly quite similar. Um, but there are differences in the way the tests are reported. And this was the first one that really focused on negative predictive value. So when the, when the test is negative, um, the report is very clear. This is a 95 or 98, depending on just how low it is, percent likelihood that if we did a biopsy, we're not going to find a Gleason grade group 2 or higher. So it's a, it's a very good, you know, rule out test for men with marginal PSAs considering biopsy. Finally, ExoDX. This is back to PCA3 and uh, fusion, erg fusion. Uh, what separates this one from the other urine tests we've talked about is it's looking at RNA in the exosomal compo component of the urine. So rather than just RNA that is shed by a mix of living and dying cells, this is RNA that's actually packaged and excreted actively by the cells in these little exosomes, little vesicles containing nucleic acids. Because of that, it does not require DRE. Um, and, you know, when this test launched, um, we initially didn't use it very much. We were mostly using Select MDX at, at UCSF, but um, about two months after the pandemic started, they came out with a home kit, which has really, you know, given them a massive advantage because in an era <clears throat> where we didn't even want patients coming to the lab, we can send them a home kit, they return it to the company, we get a score report, you know, completely remotely. So how do all these perform compared to MRI? So the negative predictive value for all these tests 
is quite good, typically mid to high 90s. But what about MR? The negative predictive value of an MRI in the PROMISE trial was 76% for finding Gleason grade group 2 or higher. This was Hash Ahmed's ARCH trial published about five years ago now. To be fair, this used a template mapping biopsy as the gold standard, so it was a more intensive biopsy than the systematic biopsies done to validate most of the liquid markers. But the reality is MRI, the reality is that MRI can miss quite a few high-grade cancers. And there's a tremendous amount of variability across radiologists in terms of their reads on this. So uh, this is data from the NCI, kind of, you can call this the best case scenario possible for MR. This is uh, Peter Pinto's group, they've been doing this longer than just about anybody. If you take the two high volume, which is HH, the two uh, high volume radiologists at NCI doing nothing but reading uh, MR all day, uh, their concordance for the index lesion by pyrads was quite good, over 90%. You can see down in the, uh, in the lower part of the graph here. For all lesions, it was around 70. Um, now, if you take the medium volume uh, radiologists at the NCI who do a lot of prostate but also do other things, their concordance for the index lesion was only 79, for all lesions down to 53, which is getting much closer to random. Stanford University, just down the street from us in San Francisco, maybe not quite the volume of MR that we have, but still does a ton of it, had the courage to actually look at their own data at the radiologist level. And if you look at the positive predictive value for having a PIRADS 5, Stanford University, excellent shop, does a ton of MR, the likelihood of actually having a high-grade cancer ranged from 40% to 80%, depending on which radiologist happened to pull your scan off the work queue. And that's Stanford. This is not low-volume community practice where the radiologists are doing chest x-rays and mammograms and everything else through the course of the day. Um, another great study from NCI pretty recently showed quite clearly that if we really want to find the aggressive cancers, it is much too soon to abandon systematic biopsy. We need to be doing the targeted plus the systematic if we find, want to find the great group twos and, and threes, which I'm not ready to abandon identifying. And the final comment I would make about this is we really should not be abandoning ultrasound as a great diagnostic modality. Um, there, you know, when ultrasound is done well, this is not even micro-ultrasound, this is standard ultrasound. We can see most of the, uh, most of the lesions that we see on MR, certainly almost all the Pyrex 5s, ultimately are identifiable on ultrasound. So, you know, the liquid markers, by and large, have a better NPV for Gleason grade group 2 or higher than MR, and in this country, they're much cheaper. You know, when we look at other contexts, almost every other health system in the world, MR costs a few hundred dollars equivalent. Here, of course, it's thousands, uh, and the markers are not available in most parts of the world. So, you know, MR is really the reflex test in the UK and many other places, despite all these problems with inter-observer variability. Here, the markers are much more cost-effective than an MR and much more consistent. And as I said, there's now an, an at-home test for, at least for EXO. It's also really important to point out that none of these tests, either before or after diagnosis, is truly binary. We want to test that if it turns blue, you take out the prostate. If it doesn't, you leave it in and tell the patient, don't worry about it. That is just not the way the biology works. These are all continuums, okay? It's a continuum of risk before diagnosis when we're trying to decide whether to do a biopsy. Likewise, after diagnosis. So the question is now going to become, how do we integrate all this? How do we sequence it? We can do PSA followed by MR followed by biopsy. This was the question um, we just gave you guys to, uh, to launch this. We can do this with a marker instead. We can do PSA followed by a marker. And then if the marker is positive, proceed with MR and biopsy. We can flip that. Um, or we can do both marker and our MRI on everybody, which is probably the most accurate but also the most expensive. I will tell you, in, at UCSF, we are typically in this sort of a sequence here, so men with an elevated PSA will get one of these markers. These days, we're doing a lot of XO and 4K because they, they don't require the DRE. Uh, if the marker's positive, we will do an MR, 
to help us do a better biopsy. But if the MR is negative, we're still going to do the biopsy. Now, I do have colleagues, you know, other academic centers whose paradigm is more like the next one over. They'll get an MR right off the bat and only get a marker if the MR is equivocal or negative. Um, and that's another reasonable way to do it. We have no data and no, no, um, no consensus in terms of the best way to integrate these, uh, these different tests. So to summarize, you know, optimal PSA screening and use of these markers. Optimal PSA screening really should include early baseline testing, age 45, 50, ideally, uh, but certainly not 69, which is the most common time to get a PSA test in this country. Um, and if you're below, below one, which a heavy majority of men are, you're really done. Do not check every year. They can come back in 20 years. You know, realistically, at UCSF, we're saying five years, but it could be much longer than that. Um, low threshold for further workup, but workup has many, many tests available now short of biopsy, in advance of biopsy. MR can help guide biopsies, so can ultrasound. I don't think these are good reflex tests yet compared to the liquid tests we've been talking about to help decide who needs to go forward with testing. Uh, the test, there's a growing number of both blood and urine tests that are, that are available. They all, like I said, perform pretty well, so it's a question of which ones um, you know, make the most sense in your clinic workflows and uh, patients can actually access. So, going back to the index case here. Um, so actually, any questions on, on that piece of it before we move on to germline? Great question. So none of them have to be iced. Um, the, so the exo test is a home kit. All the other urine tests are clinic collections. You do a DRE and then you catch the first part of the urine after, you know, after the DRE. There's special media that the urine needs to go into, but then it goes back at room temperature and, and they just get, you know, UPS or FedEx back to the lab. Uh, the 4K test is, at least in our institution, is now a send out from the UCSF lab. So you can go to the lab and they send it out to OPCO, who actually does the testing. And I believe 4K, uh, I believe 5 can be done along the same paradigm. Um, so they don't, they're, they're easy, they're all pretty easy to do, but the home kit is the easiest. Yeah. Say again? Yeah, you just, with the clinic, the, the clinic staff now will. Yeah, great question. So if a man is on a 5-ARI uh, inhibitor, um, then, yeah, do we interpret these tests differently? And the answer is generally no. So uh, it, it is a really important point. And I would stress really this whole conversation about screening and, and primary screening and secondary testing really involves primary care, right? Because ultimately they're the ones doing the testing or not. And it's really important that the primary care docs understand this issue about finasteride to test by dropping the PSA. There was actually a study from the VA a few years ago showing higher prostate cancer mortality for men on these agents. It is not because of the black box warning and some suspicion that the five ARIs are driving higher grade cancer. That doesn't happen. Um, it's because the primary care docs did not mentally adjust the PSA, so there was a significant delay in diagnosis for men on the, on the agents. Uh, the tests, by and large, have not been well studied among men on 5-ARIs. A couple of the validation studies actually excluded men on the inhibitors, or they just included them and took all comers. Um, mechanistically, there's not a really too much reason to suspect that any of the urine tests would perform differently. I think with the blood tests, it might be a different story, but they're not data that I'm, that I'm aware of. So we still interpret them the same way. 
But again, the, the critical thing with the, with the five ARIs is the initial PSA interpretation. The 4K has a question. Like, the 4K will get kicked back to you. It'll get, that's right. That's right. The 4K, 4K will not allow it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, so again, uh, we did some of this. The MR negative predictive value is not that great. So, patient who has a high PSA, and you have to think about age and DRE, uh, sorry, and, and prostate size, PSA density, there's other things to consider in, in both of those scenarios. Um, above one, yeah. So, you know, there's a big difference between a PSA of, of two and a half even, or four. Uh, between a 47-year-old and a 69-year-old. A 69-year-old with a PSA of 2.5 probably doesn't have to worry about it. A 50-year-old with a PSA of 2.5 is in the 95th percentile and absolutely needs workup. Um, you know, again, workup, we've got lots of tests to consider before biopsy. Um, but, you know, both of those scenarios, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of factors to consider. I was at a UK meeting yesterday where they're doing a ton of MR as secondary testing, and one of the attendees made the comment that, you know, buried in one of, in the precision trial, um, which actually was a detail and supplement that I had not seen before, 30% of the cases called pyreds 1 and 2 by the original radiologist got reread as 4s and 5s. Um, so there is an incredible problem with consistency of pyreds reads. So somebody who's got an indication for biopsy and a negative MR, we do the biopsy, systematic. Yeah, so it's a great question, and this is an evolution, and the reality is we all probably even do this a little bit differently, even within my institution, um, and it's going to be a little bit customized, even patient by patient. Uh, personally, I tend to start with either XO or 4K, because it's the ones I've used the most. We've done a lot of select MDX as well, but these days I'm seeing everybody on Zoom, so I can't do the DRE. Um, so we do a lot of XO. If the XO test is negative, we're usually done, um, and I tell them, you know, come back in a year, go back to primary care, depending on the situation. Uh, if the PSA is, if it's, if it's a really concerning situation, strong family history, PSA is really out of whack for prostate size, et cetera, we'll get both. I'll do the exo test and the MR right off the bat. Um, and again, if, if we have an MR, some folks are coming in with an MR, we'll look at it. If it's reasonable quality, we'll take it. That's about, that's more and more we can actually at least interpret the community MR. Um, and if it's, if it's borderline, then we'll get a marker at that point to decide whether to go, to go forward. Um, so it's, it is, it is quite personalized, honestly. Depends on family history, prostate size, age, um, race. Lots of lots of factors, you know, go into the into what actually happens at the bedside. For sure, if both the tests are negative, we're good. 
Um, and if the PSA is really high, out of proportion to everything else, I will talk about five ARIs for you know, secondary prevention in that case, you know, PCPT style. If for no other reason than you know, PSA being patient-specific anxiety, um, you know, patients feel better with a lower PSA, and it will often help with uh, with voiding symptoms too. So, will you do it in the lack of voiding symptoms? Um, I have occasionally. If their men are worried, they've had a negative biopsy. I've seen the PSAs as high as no, 18. No, but, but also, but I had negative biopsy. Negative biopsy. Okay. I don't think I've done it. That's a good, that's a good question. I don't think I've done five ARIs without a biopsy. No, that's a good question. Please. It's a very expensive study. It's a very expensive study. Look, I, the, the slide that I went through kind of quickly there, we, we put 200 patients through in, you know, consecutively in our practice where we blinded the urologists to the MR results, did an ultrasound, ultrasound lesion-guided biopsy, then took the drapes off the MR, did our fusion biopsy. We only, we uniquely identified the cancer based on the MRI in 6.5% of the cases. So we can see most of this stuff on ultrasound. We've started doing micro-ultrasound now at UCSF as well with ExactView, and this is probably going to be as good as MR. I mean, when, when MR costs $400, which it does in most of Europe and Australia and pretty much everywhere else in the civilized world, it is a great secondary test. When it costs 3000 which is what we somehow have decided is acceptable in this country, um, it's a totally different value proposition. So we do a lot of them. You know, we, we get them almost as a matter of course, but you're absolutely right. If there's a clear nodule on the on a DRE, you're going to see that on the ultrasound, and there's really no reason to go for the MR. Yeah, great question. The answer is no. The short answer is no. Um, it's a great probably area for future investigation. They have been studied a little bit in active surveillance. Um, they actually ran a great study in Canary, looking at actually a couple of papers now looking at these markers. Uh, there was another one from Hopkins at one of the poster sessions here yesterday. The bottom line is they don't do very much. Once you have the Gleason score, uh, they don't add very much. Um, the MRD question is interesting, right? I've not seen that come up. You know, the thing about that is you have, at that point, you've got the tissue. So we have the actual you know, tissue genomics, which we're going to get into um, in a little bit, which are probably going to do better. But you know, re-measuring these things after, the, after ablation is an interesting concept. Eventually, yes, but that's going to be a conversation. We've had a two-year conversation with our primary care docs at UCSF, even to get PSA into our health maintenance banner. So something along these lines, actually, PSA threshold of one, uh, you know, for early consideration for early referral. This is now baked into the UCSF EMR, and that was a long conversation. Um, and but but one that we that we did ultimately uh, prevail with. Um, I think XRDX. Or, or tests like this, you know, can absolutely be used as secondary reflex tests in primary care. But the primary care docs really need to want to be involved with this, right? They need to put the time in to understand the data, and it's got to be very tightly, clearly protocolized for them. They do not want to get into the nuances of family history and race and DRE and all this, all this stuff. 
one number threshold, do I get the test or not? If the test comes back, at what point do I need to refer to urology? So we are, we've been talking about it with at least a couple of the primary care clinics at, um, at my, you know, in our health network, and I think we'll get there eventually, but for now it's all urology. Great. All right, good. Good questions. Thank you all for participating. All right, you're stuck with me for one more section of this. So moving on with our index case now. So our 62-year-old gentleman here with the PSA 8.2 repeated. And sorry, that's a point that we should emphasize here. Elevated PSAs should absolutely be repeated. This is clear in the AUA guideline. Um, it is not remotely uncommon to see a low PSA that spikes up and then comes back down again. Um, so should always be repeated. This one was repeated, still quite high. Marginal free PSA. Uh, he has a family history. Brother was diagnosed at age 65 and underwent surgery. Does not really remember any of the details about that. Uh, so he had a 4K done, showed 23% chance of clinically significant disease. Pyrides three lesion left mid. Uh, so he went forward with a biopsy. We found eight cores out of 12 with Gleason grade group one. Reasonable involvement of each of the cores. Um, so is he candidate for germline testing? Show of hands. Who would do germline? Just one. Who would not? Everyone else? Okay. All right. So let's talk about the germline. So this is a different conversation because here we're really talking about patients who may be even upstream from PSA testing. Uh, we've already been over the, the key definition here. These terms, and these terms are, of course, arbitrary. It's just how we, how we use them by convention. Uh, when we talk about genetics, we're typically talking about the germline, the DNA that you're born with. When we talk about genomics, we're referring to alterations either in the DNA or in the regulation of the DNA, its expression, its transcription and translation in the cancer cells themselves. Uh, so the evidence here is really evolving really quite quickly. There's this Philadelphia consensus, which has now happened twice already within, within a three-year span. Uh, 2020 was the, the second one, uh, to really try to come up with uh, consensus recommendations in terms of who should get tested. And the list of relevant genes which are associated uh, with prostate cancer risk is growing uh, every year. Now, what is still, well, there's still a, a real lack of consensus from this consensus conference and pretty much everywhere else is what to do with the results and how to actually screen differently among men that do have mutations, and we'll come to that. The NCCN also has its own separate guideline now specifically on germline risk assessment. Uh, so the criteria for you know, indications for germline testing according to NCCN include family history of a known mutation, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, strong family history of prostate cancer. So this is not just my uncle got it at 87 and was on active surveillance. If you've got more than one first degree relative uh, diagnosed before 60, more than are two or more prostate or breast cancers in first-degree relatives or any metastatic or high-risk cancer. And if you have three cancers on the same side of the family among the whole cluster of uh, heritable cancers in this family of uh, germline mutations, including colon, urothelial, breast, pancreas, and ovarian. So most of the genes that are on that list are in the family of genes associated with DNA repair mechanisms. So BRCA1 and 2, um, excuse me, ATM check, most of these are in this uh, homologous recombination pathway, which is part of the cell's proofreading um, apparatus uh, intended to deal with recombination deficit, uh, defects when the cells are undergoing mitosis and the chromosomes are re-annealing. Uh, there's a number of genes, a number of proteins that are part of that process, and defects in any of them can predispose to cancer. 
So the rates of germline mutation really depend on which population we're looking at. And there was this Pritchard study in the New England Journal seven years ago now, which really kind of got this conversation going, which reported almost a 12% chance of an identifiable mutation in the DNA repair path among men with metastatic disease. And that's an important caveat there. This is a, a highly selected population. Um, now from uh, TCGA, we can look at the same question for men with high-risk prostate cancer. It's about 6%. And you can see the distribution here. BRCA2 is by far the most important single gene. Uh, BRCA1, of course, mostly associated with breast cancer, is a player, but not nearly as much as 2. ATM and CHECK are the sort of second and third uh, most important. Now in the when we get out of high risk, these rates drop. So, you know, there have been a number of different uh, additional studies since the Pritchard paper. So again, but, but it's, the Pritchard paper does, has held up. So the rates of mutations um, among patients with metastatic disease around 7 to 16%. High risk localized, 6 to 9%. Low risk localized, though, we're down to about 1.5 to 3.5%. And this is actually about consistent with the general population, where we see about 3% rate of mutation in this population. Now, this is skipping forward a bit, but there has been this whole question about do we treat differently when we find these mutations? This is a paper from Hopkins, which is the only one so far that has really drilled down and looked at outcomes of active surveillance split by BRCA status. And this is the, sorry, sorry, this is the Castro study. This is looking at, at uh, I'm sorry, among patients with, uh, with advanced disease progressing to metastasis, uh, much higher likelihood of, of progressing to metastatic disease. Um, for patients who have a BRCA mutation compared to those who don't. Um, we can talk about the active surveillance one in, in a little bit. However, in prostate cancer, unlike breast cancer, where BRCA1 and 2 explain a lot of the identifiable breast cancers, all these single genes that we're talking about are relatively minor players. And this concept of the tip of the iceberg is that, you know, we know from linkage studies, prostate cancer is the most heritable cancer. But all these mutations together account for a pretty small fraction of identified inheritable, inherited um, prostate cancer patterns. The rest, you know, we kind of say is unknown. It may be genes that we haven't identified yet, but it's also very likely polygenic. It's the way the genes interact with each other that establishes risk rather than single genes. So there's a number of these polygenic scores now based on SNP panels. These are very cheap to do. You can do them from blood or saliva. And these, you know, the, the question is where these are going to be used. The, the teams that are developing these are enthusiastic that this will help us decide who needs a PSA test. I personally think it's extremely unlikely in the foreseeable future that a primary care doctor who can barely wrap their head around, you know, what the right threshold for a PSA should be is going to figure out how to do germline testing and interpret, you know, how are we going to think about a PSA differently if the guy's got a SNP score of 37 versus. I, I just don't see it happening. Now, when we get into the next generation of completely non-justified, unnecessary whole genome sequencing that a subset of people are going to do at the shopping mall with 23andMe or what have you, we're going to get guys who have their whole genome and will be able to calculate one of these scores based on the whole genome. So, you know, just as one example here, there's a, a number of these studies coming out now. The positive predictive value of an elevated PSA ranges from 7% to almost 25%, depending on your, on your genes. Um, but all the money here is really in the extremes. So this is looking at the, below the 20th percentile versus above the 95th. And there's, most patients are, are going to be in this sort of average risk. The combination of the polygenic risk scores with the individual mutations also gives us more information. So this is looking at the odds, you know, odds ratios for identification of high-grade disease. Um, and the dark blue line, sorry, the, the x-axis here is the deciles of risk according to the polygenic risk score. And then the dark blue versus light blue is if you do not or do also have a single gene mutation. So 
you, know, you can see that the combination of these really gives us the most information. And yeah, look, if you had all this information, you could comfortably tell the folks at the far left, you really don't need to worry about this, don't even get a PSA. And the guys on the far right, you know, need an annual PSA and eventually we're gonna find cancer. It's a question of when, not if, and, and we need to be sure not to lose these guys. Uh, but again, from a primary care standpoint, because this is a primary care conversation, not a urology conversation, are we really gonna do this upstream of an early baseline PSA? Maybe someday, but I don't think it's gonna happen in you know, this decade. So this is the actor surveillance study I was, I was talking about before. Um, this is from Hopkins, looking at likelihood of reclassification to higher grade disease for men with mutations. So the top graph here is over time for men who have got BRCA1 or 2 or ATM. The bottom graph restricts it to men with BRCA2 alone. And you can see there is a much higher likelihood of reclassification among men with mutations. Uh, the question becomes, do we tell these men they're ineligible for active surveillance? I personally do not feel that way. When you look at this graph here, by six years, 50% of the men with mutations have reclassified. Well, great, 50% haven't. They're still low grade at, at uh, six years. And the reality is reclassification is usually to a low volume Gleason grade group two, and the cancer is still eminently curable. Uh, the number of these men where we think we're really missing the window and they were curable at diagnosis and now it's too late, you know, those exist. Those are certainly not quantified in, in this study, um, and I think they remain very, very rare. These men need close surveillance, and we tell them these are men who absolutely need the PSA every six months. They cannot skip biopsies. Uh, they need intense surveillance if they're going to go down the surveillance path, but it does not mean we need to go straight to prostatectomy or radiation for every 52-year-old with Gleason grade group one in one core just because they've got a mutation. Um, and finally, some of these mutations, I'm gonna, this, is, this is much more relevant to medical oncology, but we're getting to the point where some of these mutations are actionable at, at the standpoint of managing advanced disease. Uh, of course, there's a lot of interest in PARP inhibitors, which are particularly relevant for men with mutations in these pathways. The same is true for platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, and, you know, uh, as we identify these earlier, it may be the case that we can find subsets of men who should get PARP inhibitors early in the pathway. Um, and I'm not going to go through all the details on these, but there's a number of trials now uh, showing benefit. One is the particular benefit for men with mutations. One of the challenges, though, being that there's not a great readout yet in terms of how we can identify the men with the mutations who are going to benefit the best from, from PARP inhibitors. So a lot of the trials have been done uh, across men who do and do not have, have mutations. Those who do, do better. They have a more of a response to the medication. Uh, but it's certainly not a, a black and white question, and I think there's still a lot of open questions in terms of identifying the men best suited for PARPs. Um, and there's a, number of, there's a number of trials in this space. I'm happy to go through it if you guys would like, but it's, this is much more of a medical oncology question for now. Um, there is also thought that men with uh, microsatellite instability, which is also read out in a lot of these genetic tests, uh, might do particularly well with immunotherapy uh, using PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibition. Um, and there's a number of other targets. Uh, the AKT pathway, which is P10, uh, can now be targeted with these PI3 kinase inhibitors. There's a whole set of, you know, we're going to enter this era very soon of, of truly tailoring systemic treatments based on both germline and, and somatic uh, genetics. And it's a very exciting, you know, era. Uh, the question finally becomes then, are we testing enough men? And this goes back to the, to the initial case. Um, this is a conversation that we definitely do need to be launching as the urologists for men who do have high-grade disease, anybody with metastatic disease, men who've got a high-grade cancer, especially at a young age, or those with strong family history, really should be thinking about genetic testing, both because it can affect what medications they're eligible for later, and it's important information for the family. But we do know data, at least as of a couple years ago, most eligible men are not yet being counseled or referred for testing. Um, 
now there's lots of different models in terms of who does this. Should the urologist actually order the test? Uh, do they send them to a counselor? You know, basically, the model is either the urologist does, you know, does the counseling, orders the test, and sends them to the counselor only if the test is positive, or you can send them to the genetic counselor to have the whole conversation about genetic testing and let them run the whole, you know, the whole conversation. I have absolutely no feeling on this as long as it works for your practice and you've got a good genetic counselor to, to work with. Um, and I also have you know, really no feelings in terms of which particular test to order. This is you know, 10 different lab tests and which genes are included in them. They all include ATM, BRCA1 and 2 in check. Um, we happen to use Invite at UCSF. There's color. There's a whole. There's a, a number of them. These are pretty easy to do. They're pretty inexpensive, um, and their access to them is increasingly good. And, and they're increasingly covered by insurance as well. So that's really it. I, you know, obviously take a strong family, good family history to start uh, to identify the men who really should be counseled for genetic testing. Um, and it is important to really think about an algorithm here so that it will be easy when you identify patients who are eligible. Um, and that's where I'll stop. Any other questions? Can I make a couple comments real quick? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, please. so um, before we do that in this case, on this germline testing, I think I get a lot of comments from my patients saying, oh, I'm going to go get an Ancestry or a 23andMe. That, that's not what we're talking about. I mean, this is yeah. like really, it's much different. And I think patients and even providers get confused about that. And the other comment on the, uh, just uh, uh, editorially on, on the active surveillance setting, and that was 26 patients out of over 1,000. So those men in active surveillance that were worried that in that study were 26 patients out of over 1,000. So it's a pretty, it's, it, it, you know, are we going to test, a, uh, you know, 100 men to find those two, two or three people that have these mutations? I'm not sure it's going to have a big effect on who you're going to do active surveillance on. So really, practically speaking, as urologists, is that really going to affect us? Probably not. But as we discover new variants, I think it will. But right now, I, I question it too, yeah. Totally. Questions? Great, great question. So first of all, um, yes, I mean, the GWAS studies that, that identified these SNPs were based on prostate cancer, yes or no. Um, uh, these are large, you know, multi-tens of thousand patient sets, typically international. They are just now, so, so that, I mean, that's always been the endpoint. These have been driven by genetics folks, not really by urologists or oncologists. Um, there are a couple papers that are now starting to look at these um, after diagnosis to try to do prognostic stratification. Uh, Bill Catalona had a paper out in JU a few months ago. It's the first one that, yeah, the, there are some issues with the way, the way the paper is set up, but it's one of the first ones to show that they may actually drive outcomes of active surveillance. Depends how you define the outcomes. And, you know, I, I am personally slightly skeptical that these are going to outperform the other tests we're about to hear about in terms of telling us very much after diagnosis. I think they might be additive, maybe, um, but, you know, once you've got the tumor, you know, in a, in, on a slide, and you can actually interrogate the RNA, which, again, we're going to talk about in a second, uh, you're going to learn much more about that cancer's potential behavior. So the SNPs, you know, they are, they are, again, they are intended to predict prostate cancer. They're being studied to predict high-grade cancer, but they don't, uh, they're not really set up for 
predicting METs. Uh, there was another nice, nice poster at the session yesterday from the Harvard Professional Follow-Up Study Group uh, looking at the SNPs, and they do not pan out when looking at the lethal prostate cancer endpoint that they've really been driving in, in HPFS. So it may well be that there are different SNPs, that there's different genes, but you've got to find tens of thousands of men with those endpoints uh, to do that sort of GWAS. So, yeah, and the, just the other point on that, I think what's going to happen, and they've, they've, we've looked, a lot of people have looked at whether it's a, yeah, it's a yes, no prostate cancer, that's the problem, but if it's, if it's yes prostate cancer, it's bad prostate cancer, that, that's the question, right? And nothing's panned out, although the most recent data shows that if you combine the PRS, which is multiple SNPs, multiple germline defects, with the rare bad variants, the BRCA1, 2, ATM, the combination of those two, and they're, they're, they're rare, um, actually might predict some higher, higher lethal cancer. But right now, um, unfortunately, it, it, it's a yes, no binary, you have cancer or not. We're going to get there. I don't. I don't know that you're really getting four times. I mean, you know what I mean. There's there's a lot of claims about this stuff. I don't. And I, of course, I'm not tracking the dementia literature all that tightly. But I, you know, how well these things really do, I'm not so sure yet. And there's a lot of marketing, and it's it's going to be yet another sort of disparity problem too. We already have an issue where high SES men get worse care in prostate cancer because they have much higher rates of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. Uh, historically, and you know, it's going to be another round of this when the guys go to the shopping mall and get the. You know, we now, I'm, I've not seen men who got a whole body MRI at the mall for a thousand bucks, you know, and somebody called a Pyrides 3 on this non cut. It's, it's I'm 36 years old, and what am I supposed to do with this guy? Um, you know, PSA 0.4. It's, it's not so. I'm, look, we're going to get there. The Gattaca, you know, your child will be a basketball player, and you know, you know, should. We'll yeah, the, we'll pan, the pan cancer yeah. screening, single blood draw. I mean, AUA, you know, 2032 or something. It's going to happen, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. not, not yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> All right. All right. So back to our index case. You know, we learned from Matt that this um, gentleman is not a candidate for germline testing, despite his 65-year-old brother. And what next? So show of hands for active surveillance for this gentleman. High volume, grade group one disease. How many would get genomic testing? And how many think he deserves definitive treatment? Great. All right, so we're going to um, launch into the genomic testing on the biopsies. So I'm going to talk about Decipher. So man's diagnosed, again, this gentleman with high gra or, uh, low grade, rather, high volume uh, disease. Are we going to move toward active surveillance or definitive treatment? And right now, we base that on various nomograms, tables, et cetera, that incorporate Gleason score, age, PSA, number of cores, et cetera, et cetera. But we know that that's not accurate. This gentleman here is favorably intermediate. Some of those guys do great and should be on active surveillance, and some not so great and probably deserve treatment. So is there any way we can sort of separate the wheat from the chaff? So Decipher is one of the tests available to help do that. And what we're trying to do is divide these gentlemen who look the same based on our standard criteria into a different box. 
And Decipher does that on a continuum from zero to 1.0 and divides them by, into groups called low risk, intermediate, and high risk. So again, without genomic testing, these gentlemen look similar by PSA, grade group, et cetera, et cetera. And with genomic testing, we've placed them in a, in a different category. So the endpoint for Decipher is metastasis. And I think with all these tests, we can either look at biochemical recurrence, metastasis, or death, and those things are a continuum. So obviously not everybody who has a biochemical recurrence goes on to metastasis. Not everybody who gets metastasis goes on to a, a, a death. So Decipher is a 22 um, gene test across uh, seven pathways, RNA-based. And when you look at it, it was designed to be an accurate predictor of metastasis, so you would, you would expect it to be. And the area under the curve is about 0.81. When you compare that to the other things that are out there, it performs, uh, it performs better. When you get your decipher report back on a biopsy, um, this is what you see. And what you see is what is the risk of metastasis that this gentleman has if he undergoes definitive treatment, defined as standard radiation therapy or um, surgery. What are his risks of prostate cancer mortality over 15 years? And what are the risks of adverse pathology at surgery? And the way that it's defined by Decipher is T3B or grade group um, 3 through 5 or lymph node involvement. T3A in their studies, Decipher was not predictive, as opposed to some of the other um, tests like Oncotype that we're going to hear about in a bit. In addition, Decipher will give you something called a grid that uh, is designed to give you a bit of a better idea of how sensitive this particular tumor is to radiation, androgen deprivation therapy or not. Again, I think we're early on in really applying those things, but that's, that's what uh, the company's striving to do. You get an idea of where you fall in the continuum. I always call this the American Jones Report because everybody wants to know how they compare to somebody else, you know, personally. I'd rather have my kid, you know, graduate last from Harvard than first from what's the matter you. So I'd rather have the worst aggressive low-risk cancer that's out there than I would a, a, a better high-grade uh, cancer. So you have a candidate for active surveillance. You run the test, and the idea is it defines who is a better candidate for definitive therapy and who should continue with active surveillance. Generally, the cutoff for that is 0.45. Again, it's, the test is a continuum from 0 to 1.0. And here's the negative predictive value. And the negative predictive value, if your score is less than 0.45, is very good. So I think that's what most people are using for a cutoff to determine who their active surveillance population is. Uh, this is a study from Matt in European Urology in 2018. And again, it's a continuum. As the increased genomic uh, score goes up, you have a higher risk of developing metastasis. Those are men that you might want to step in on a little bit earlier and give definitive therapy. I think the, the new arena is obviously favorable intermediate risk disease. You know, quick show of hands. You know, Matt put his hand up very high for our high, our high volume grade group one disease, right? So if that's the, the worst of the low risk and we're very comfortable following those folks. The favorable intermediate you know, we've only been doing it really according to guidelines for about four or five years now. And when you divide favorable and intermediate risk disease by decipher score, and then you look at adverse uh, pathology features at surgery, what you find is if they have a lower intermediate decipher score, those gentlemen have a risk of adverse pathology very similar to very low and low risk men. 
Whereas if they have a high score, it's more like unfavorable intermediate risk. So what we're trying to do is, like the table I showed at the beginning, figure out which of these patients are more in the low risk group and more are, and who is in the um, unfavorable intermediate risk group. So here's a gentleman, um, a low risk disease, has a decipher score of 0 0.30. That would drive us, I think, toward active surveillance. But here's a gentleman who's also low risk, and he's probably low risk because of his PSA density, just looking at his PSA because he only has two cores. But he has a, a risk score of 0 0.80. That's a gentleman that you might want to consider for definitive therapy. So once you've decided whether a man's going to undergo active surveillance or definitive therapy, these tests can also be used to decide how aggressive should your uh, treatment be. So if he has higher risk disease, again, you're a little bit more worried about him. I personally haven't really used these yet into my um, algorithm when I'm in the operating room to decide if I'm going a little wider or not. I'm probably doing it in the back of my head, I suppose, but I certainly don't have anything formal. Um, in the radiation world, there's, there's more evidence-based medicine to sort of base things on. So this is um, a study that showed um, in 121 patients that if you had a low decipher score, your chances of developing metastasis down the road was very low if you were treated with radiation alone. But if you had an intermediate or high score, your risk of developing metastasis was higher. So this really supports you know, current guidelines, I think, for unfavorable intermediate risk and higher of giving concurrent androgen deprivation therapy. So another study that says that this test helps us identify patients who may need intensification, and again, what you see is that these men, and this was from Dana-Farber, received radiation therapy in a short course, six months of ADT. 60% of these patients were low risk. They hardly ever developed metastasis, but the high risk men do. Begging the question, would extra androgen deprivation therapy help? Should we give higher doses of radiation? You know, can we adjust our, our treatment paradigm? So again, typical patient, 71, 5.8 um, PSA, favorable intermediate risk disease with grade group two. He comes back with a, a decipher score of 0 0.30. He probably should get radiation alone. And that's what he would have received anyhow based on the NCCN guidelines. But similar gentleman, again, favorable intermediate risk disease with a high risk decipher score. Maybe he deserves six months of antigen deprivation therapy based on those prior studies. Take it a step further, right now really in NCCN guidelines, genomics is not indicated for unfavorable intermediate risk disease, but if you had a gentleman with, and I see these guys all the time, they really want radiation, but they don't want the androgen deprivation therapy. So I might do a decipher test on that gentleman, and if he comes back at 0 0.30, I'll have a discussion with the radiation oncologist, and we'll talk about the pluses and minuses of foregoing that six months of ADT. But if he has a decipher score of 0 0.80, unfavorable intermediate risk, then I think he certainly deserves at least the six months. So when you look again across the paradigm, the first question is active surveillance or definitive therapy? And if they're low risk, they go toward active surveillance, intermediate or high. Again, using a cutoff of 0 0.45, I tend to recommend definitive therapy. If they're going to get definitive therapy, do they get radiation alone? radiation and hormones, and maybe in the back of my head I'm taking this into account in the operating room subconsciously, but I certainly don't try to. 
And then the duration of hormone therapy. If they're going to get radiation, do they get just a short course, six months, or do they deserve the one to three years that our higher risk gentlemen um, receive? So happy to entertain any questions about Decipher. Otherwise, I will um, turn the podium over to Dan. And obviously, there will be opportunities at the end of this just to ask genomic questions in general. Okay, so um, I'm going to take you through the other uh, two major platforms, that being Prolinus and Oncotype. I always, when I'm talking about biomarkers, you know, I have to make sure that we look ourselves in the mirror and say, well, are we doing the right thing uh, compared to other, other groups? Now, I have some disclosures. Of course, like all of us, we uh, interact with the biomarker companies, receive funding. I put this up all the time, and this is breast cancer. And why are we at the AUA looking at a breast cancer guideline? Because this is the challenge, in my opinion. The challenge is breast cancer because they have readily available markers that they've used for decades. Um, you know, they have this issue of whether they're uh, ERP or positive or HER2 positive or negative. And this is like the most common breast cancer subtype. It's a, a, a ductal ER positive, HER2 negative patient. And, you know, this is my mom, you know, I mean, I, I, my mother had breast cancer. So you, you look at this and on this guideline, uh, right there in the middle, there's, there's a test, you know, there's a biomarker and uh, it's actually on the guidelines, which tells uh, or, or lets us know, perhaps to give adjuvant endocrine therapy, perhaps to give chemotherapy. It saves a lot of women chemotherapy um, in the adjuvant setting and it's on the guidelines like in the, in the flow chart, not in a footnote. Um, and then you look at, look at uh, what they've, how they've come about this, and they've done clinical trials. And this is the Taylor RX trials. It was years ago, but they actually looked at thousands of, of women on a clinical trial, and they, they did use this test. And it, again, saves women from, from getting uh, chemotherapy. Here's our guidelines. You know, there's no, there's no, unfortunately, AR positive, you know, androgen receptors positive, and, you know, most men having prostate cancer. So we don't, we don't have an have a hormone receptor positive or negative. We don't have a HER2, and we don't have any biomarkers in here. I'd love to get to a time, again, we we're joking about AUA 2032, but I'm, I think it, it might get there sooner. I mean, all the biomarkers are on the guidelines. So all the biomarkers we're talking about now are on the guidelines. They're just not up in this highlighted place yet. Um, and I'm hoping that it will be. I'm, we're very much, all of us are very much pro trying to get uh, biomarkers uh, on the guidelines. Same thing with favorable intermediate risk. If you look there, it can be doing nothing versus doing something very radical. Again, how can we get biomarkers to help us? Even in the, the lower part there where the, if a man has a prostatectomy and you that do these surgeries, you, you take a man's prostate and he has adverse features and uh, even lymph node positive disease. And the choice is do nothing versus do something with toxicity. So why isn't there a biomarker there? Um, we're trying to figure, figure m much of this out. So having said that, that's a little soapbox, but I think it's important to know that we, we, we are pushing ahead and we can use biomarkers differently. So what about the two platforms I'm going to talk about? One is Prolaris and one is Oncotype. So Prolaris is based on, you go back to, to medical school, you know, KI-67, which was how fast a cell divides, cell cycle. It's based on cell cycle, how fast cells are dividing. Um, it's a 31 gene panel. There have been multiple published endpoints, so I'm going to work through a couple of these things. But they're relevant. They're mortality. They're death from prostate cancer um, as well as recurrent prostate cancer. And this is how, how Prolaris works, and it's very similar to Oncotype 
it, I think the way that I describe this, and this is you know the the first author is right here on the on the podium here, Matt. Um, pivotal paper in JCO, and I'll have you just focus on the right-hand side of the slide there. And on the x-axis is the CAPR S, or just what we would, with clinical variables, how we would predict someone might recur. And if you look at the lower, lower risk group down here, if a man walked in and we just used clinical variables, I would say, oh yeah, you have a 10 or 20% chance of having a recurrent prostate cancer in the next 10 years. That, that's the CAPR S predicted 10 year recurrence, 10 to 20%. But if we use the, a test, and in this case it's Prolaris, in the next case will be Oncotype, but very similar um, uh, theme. If we use a test, then we get the little dot. And, and instead of saying you have a 10 to 20%, I could find which dot they are, and it actually broadens the scope up to 35, 40% chance of recurrence all the way down to less than 5%. So that's what the test does. It goes from telling a patient, oh, you have a I think 10 or 20%, but then you can say, oh no, you're, you're at the 35th or you're way down here. So it broadens and, and improves how we can talk to our patients about, in this case, chance of recurrence, but really in, in, in the case that we're going to, in cases we're going to talk about, just the risk of having bad disease. This is a sample report. Now, I'll apologize to those of you in the audience that are using these tests because you know this isn't the more, most current one. They're evolving every few years, every few months in some cases, because the companies are improving them. So this is a little bit of old Perlaris report, but I, I put it here to show uh, the relevant points that you get when you order this test. And again, I know a lot of you order these tests already, so you see these reports. But for those of you who don't, it's important to, to, to look and see what's on the test. And there's multiple different aspects of the test. First of all, it gives where they are within their distribution, within their risk. It also will tell them a 10-year mortality risk, which is almost always very, very low. It, it, it just is. 10 years mortality of prostate cancer, even higher-risk prostate cancers, usually single digits. Regardless, in this case, they give an active surrenal threshold, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, as well as a metastasis risk. So again, Prolaris, uh, the company has blown this out to be a three-page report now, but they have all the, all the components in there. I just wanted to let you know about that. There was, and, and, and I authored this with the company looking at uh, trying to find a risk threshold for active surveillance. And, and uh, uh, what, what we did here in this, there were several thousand patients. We looked at their Prolera scores, uh, and, and we call it CCR in this case. And when we looked at a threshold of a CCR at 0.8, and we, there were no prostate cancer-specific deaths above this threshold. When you look at the, when you, again, you can draw a line there, the bottom line there at CCR of less than 0.8, in both the validation cohort has zero, like literally zero deaths. And so they drew a line right there and they said, that's our active surveillance threshold. And I think that it's been credentialized in multiple other series, and now we have that on the report. In the Prolaris decision-making, at the end of the day, we ask ourselves, are these tests changing how we practice? And so there have been multiple decision-making um, uh, studies where we would ask the physician and the patient, what are you gonna do uh, after the diagnosis? get the test, now what are you going to do, and then actually what actually they did, all right? And so this is one of them. This is from, from Dave Crawford. This is a 305-patient study, yet there's another one that's well over 1,000, and they looked at the change in therapeutic burden. In other words, did they actually look like they were changing what they did based on the test? And 65% of the time, they changed, and you can see there that 40% of the time, they decreased what they did. In other words, maybe go from treatment to active surveillance, and about 25%, they increased what they did, like what Dr. Wagner was saying, maybe add hormonal therapy or something like that to radiation therapy. 
It affected decision-making in all AUA risk categories. This was just a, a snapshot of what was happening. So let's take an example on the low-risk line, the top line there, 135 patients. And again, what happened? In, in some of them, like 12.6% there, intervention to intervention, nothing changed, okay? Or in 55% of them, non-intervention to non-intervention, nothing changed. But there was, in, in this, in the top line case, over 30% of them did actually change with what, what uh, the decision that they made with regards to treatment. So it is changing how we practice. It's changing how our patients decide, because some of this is patient-driven, of course. And this is the bigger study in Neil Shore, over 1,000 patients now. And again, you can just see there, about half of the, half of the time, there was a change in, in what uh, uh, the, the patient actually ended up receiving. A lot of times it was a, it was, if you look there, it was a decrease. And I think it was pushing men more towards active surveillance when we look at the registry series. So I'm gonna switch gears and look at Oncotype. I think Oncotype is another uh, very valuable uh, platform. And again, what it's doing, what these all are doing is trying to find what we don't see under the microscope or what we don't see in, on, our, on our epic chart, which is PSA grade, age, race, and so forth, how fast PSA. We're looking at the genes. Is the biopsy an accurate reflection? Clinical features, just like I just said, don't always uh, reflect the true nature of the tumor. And of course, this affects our decision making. When you look at just the simple question of, and we did, and many of, I can tell probably many in the room, did a lot of prostatectomies on Gleason 6 disease, and we're not doing that now. But when you do that, you see that there's upgrading quite a bit as well as it not only a three, from 3 plus 3 to 3 plus 4 or higher, but also from 3 plus 4 even higher. And on, in these cases, what, what can we do to improve our prediction for adverse pathology? And, and I think adverse pathology is a relevant endpoint. And so in the Oncotype test, adverse pathology is, is their primary endpoint. And the really key question is, if you take men that you're operating on, again, you all are seeing these patients in your clinic, there's probably 20 or 30% of them that have something that we call adverse pathology. Adverse pathology is extracapsular disease, primary pattern four. I think none of us want our patients that, that, to have that. And it's a relevant endpoint because if you think about those men that have adverse pathology in the bottom part of this slide, and you can see how they do uh, after surgery, the, the biochemical failure rate's much higher than if they had favorable pathology. You can see their biochemical occurrence in, in orange. The metastasis rate over time at 10 years, again, much higher, like multiple fold higher, as well as mortality. The adverse pathology group, again, that being primary pattern four, so that's grade group three or higher, or, or T3 disease, they're the ones that we really need to, to watch out for. So how did uh, Oncotype uh, uh, develop their test? They basically looked at various different places in the prostate, and we said to ourselves, does the distant part of the prostate really reflect the, the cancer part and vice versa? And we looked at primary and <clears throat> highest Gleason, and this is from Eric Klein's group. This was the, the pivotal paper, taking thousands of genes and finding the relevant ones, putting them together, and then after it all was said and done in the mix, looked at which genes really predicted the relevant endpoints, which I just said, act, uh, adverse pathology uh, and uh, biochemical recurrence, and it came out with 17 genes. Now, this is not just uh, cell cycle, um, like cell cycles there, that cellular proliferation, but it's also antigen signaling, cellular organization, and so forth, and putting all these together into an algorithm. Now, there were multiple validation studies, which I'm not going to run over all, all of them, and Matt also was the primary author on, on many of these studies. This is the pivotal slide I want to show, and it's very similar 
to that Prolera slide I showed with all the little dots on it. Because if we took a man and, and, and one of your patients that, you, that you're going to do surgery on, and you were just to ask yourself, what's the chance of them having that adverse pathology? And you took an, a, a low-risk man, let's, let's say the yellow one there, you could probably tell them you have about a 30% chance if I took your prostate out that you're going to have disease that's extracapsular, something like that. And, and I always look at the yellow one because that is a more common, or maybe, maybe the intermediate risk, the, the red one there. But if you do this test, you're going to be able to tell them where along, this, along the entire continuum, where along this line, so somewhere along that yellow line. You can tell someone now instead of, oh, it's about 30% chance, you could tell them maybe it's as high as 60 or as low as 10. So you, you go from telling someone this, oh, you're in this range, to telling someone you're here or you're here, which I think is a really uh, visually good uh, to tell, tell a patient how where, and where they are. So again, would you want this patient to go on extra surveillance? Uh, would you run a radical prostatectomy and so forth? And um, again, this has been done in multiple series. I won't run through all the data. M hundreds of patients looking at where they are with regards to metastasis, where they are with regards to death. And again, GPS predicts both those endpoints. Um, lastly is the utility. So again, does it change what we do? Because I think that's really important certainly for the payers, but, but uh, in insurance, but really, does it really change what we do for practice? And this is a clinical utility study published in Urology Practice, and Mark Delera uh, at UC Davis was the first author of this study. And again, when one looks at active surveillance decision-making in very low, low, and intermediate risk without GPS, and it's in that, if let's look at the middle one. I always look at the middle one, the low risk. If you look at the low risk, about a third of the men say that they're going to uh, uh, have uh, extra surveillance, but if you do the GPS and the GPS there is in orange, then it really literally doubles the number uh, of men uh, going on for active surveillance. So there's no doubt it has prognostic information. It's validated as a predictor for metastasis and death. Adverse pathology, as I said, is a very relevant endpoint. None of us want our patients to have adverse pathology. And then I'm just going to show a, a couple uh, screenshots of the report. Again, apologies to those of you that are using the test. This is an old report. There's updates, and there always are updates. And the major one is that it, they're going, gone away from stratification within the NCCN group, and it's mostly just within the distribution of men like them in, uh, in with, with getting this test. Again, very relevant endpoints on this, on this report, and I'm just going to skip through to show you the relevant endpoints, that being uh, death from prostate cancer, and again, that's usually pretty low, for any prostate cancer in the first 10 years, metastasis and adverse pathology, and adverse pathology is the relevant endpoint. And again, this will show you, you get this test, now it's a multiple page test, it's not just one page anymore, and, it, and these risks of these outcomes are, are, are clearly, clearly on, on, the, uh, on the report. I do want to show one example that's, that's again, relevant. This is the, a patient, there are two patients, let's say, they both have the same PSA, they both have the same PSA density, they both have the same prostate gland volume, and they have uh, six to 12 cores high volume gray group one. Let's say we got the, and, and again, I call this high volume gray group one. And I think it's a good target group to get uh, a biomarker test on. And if we got this test, there could be two different results. And these might be the two different results. Again, uh, just look at the scores. Not within necessarily NCCN group. One has a low score, one has a high score. And if you look again at the relevant endpoints, death is gonna be low for both. Um, that's just how, how, how prostate cancer behaves. Metastasis is way different. And we expect a man with a higher genomic score, 
again, where that's Prolaris, where that's GPS, but in this case, GPS is going to have a higher chance of having metastasis. The, the relevant one for this test is this adverse pathology, which is quite a bit different. Okay, you can have um, uh, several fold difference in adverse pathology based on a single test in genomics. And again, would you manage these patients the same way? Ask yourself that. Show of hands would probably know. Um, my reflections, and these are just uh, editorial comments, but I'm not sure we need additional tests in these low volume one core, two core. You know, there's multiple series out there. Um, the Pivot trial, the Scandinavian trial, the Johns Hopkins cohort on active surveillance. Universally excellent outcomes. And again, they're usually one or two cores of Gleason 6, PSA less than 10. Do we need uh, uh, another test? Probably not. Um, I think our mortality and metastasis really good endpoints in actors, for active surveillance in low risk? Probably not. They're all with single digits. And there's really nice uh, uh, work being done. This is from Scott Egener, the ASCO guidelines. They basically said the biomarkers might improve, but only if they're additive. And they gave example scenarios. And these example scenarios are a take-home point, in my opinion. There are certain patients that, that do well with these tests. And they give some examples here. I think high volume grade group one, grade group one with a high PSA density, maybe some low volume grade group two. Those are good patients that we should consider, but they're not recommended for routine use. Now, I couldn't add um, uh, the AUA guidelines that just came out Friday, basically. James Easton presented that at the plenary session. In the AUA guidelines, it's very similar to this. The AUA guidelines said use them selectively, don't routinely use the biomarkers. Okay. Um, so take home points. For prolayer synoconite for my section, uh, but very similar to what Dr. Ragnar was saying. They independently predict disease biology. They do. There's no doubt they do. They have multiple validated studies. The active surveillance threshold is nice to aid in decision making. The utility studies do show they change what we do. And I think that's very important. There are some caveats. And I mean, they were mostly all done in patients who had already had prostatectomy. They haven't been done that much in, in a long-term series of active surveillance. I, I question that a little bit. And then again, low risk patients, I'm not sure metastasis or, or mortality really, really matter. So questions for, for this part? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, good question. <laughs> there have been, I mean, Matt might know that. Have, did you have a study on this a little bit, like comparing the studies? Okay. Have you had a, uh, you, we, I mean, like you, we have, we have, we have a few dozen patients, but we have, but nobody's done a formal head-to-head. -head no one's done a formal, I mean, my personal feeling is no. I mean, I, I think that they test different genes, but the idea, and you can see how robust the data is even between those tests, and I think that they do, they do a good job independently. There have been a few studies that have tried to look at them head to head, and they're not really fair studies because some of them are, are, are not actually doing the test. They're doing like a in silico, we call it in silico, just in, in, in a gene test by themselves. I haven't seen them to be very robust in those data. Do you know of any? 
Yeah, we, we did a paper that I popped up yeah, with 22 right. patients, right. and our Cronback uh, alpha coefficient was 0.75, meaning they jive 0.75. That's pretty good. You know? But when they don't jive, just because one told you you should do nothing and the other one tells you you should do something, they both, you know, one's obviously crystal ball, one's right and wrong, but we don't know. We don't know. I'm sorry? Yeah, which test is the best, guys? Yeah, that's, that's easy. No, and there is no best test. No. And that's what I started with. I think you have to, you know, talk to people, read the literature, decide what you think are, are endpoints, and then I do think it depends on your volume. So for us, we're at tertiary centers. I have guys coming in the door every week with one of these tests. I need to understand them all. And then once in a while, I can tweak it a little. So if a guy really wants to know, you know, what are the, my chances? I want to watch it, but I'm a little worried about doing that. What are the, my chances of dying if I watch it? Then I might use Polaris because there's something on the report that gives him a better idea of that than he has right now. And if I have the gentleman who wants radiation, but he wants to avoid ADT, then I think Decipher might be a better test for that particular gentleman. So it depends. So sometimes there's a specific question they have, then I can pick a test. Otherwise, I swear on my mom, I've got an app on my phone, and I can hit a button, and it rolls dice, and then it says Prolaris Oncotype or Decipher. And when they're really up in the air, I do that, just to let them know how, how I think these are all valid tests, because I have to disclose you know, what I've done, and, you know, et cetera, and, and I take that into account. Yeah, do you want to have a comment, Matt? Oh, sure. I mean, I like I guess two comments. One is, and this had been a record, uh, record about this for a long time. You know, one one of the comments I made at the beginning is for and these tests are all expensive. For them for them to have value, they need to improve on what we already know. The NCCN is a terrible way of risk identifying prostate cancer. It's completely outdated. They've now dropped the very low risk classification, which is great. It's a step in the right direction. But this whole FIR, you know, unfavorable intermediate, we can do so much better with you know tons of tests, that, tons of uh, you know models that have been extensively well validated at this point. Stevenson nomogram, Capra score, there are, there are plenty of things out there. And these tests all improve on true multivariable risk prediction <coughs> systems. But for me to spend $4,000 to subcertify the NCCN classification, I can already do that for free uh, with the Capra score or something like it. So I don't love the, you know, the subset of the reports that are, that are kind of structured according to the NCCN. And that's a, that's a shrinking, you know, Oncotypes is the only one that still does that. And it's much less highlighted now than it was before. Um, so in terms of the way the results are actually presented to the patient, there's a lot of science that goes into developing these tests, right? We all, you know, those of us in academics work with the companies, there's really good statistics behind it. The reports tend to get made by the marketing departments. Um, and the reality is there is a science behind decision making that is not necessarily reflected. There are people whose whole, you know, academic careers are in how to present really complicated, quant you know, quantitative information, which is what this is, to patients with very variable numeracy. And that expertise is not typically reflected in, in, in any of them. So I've actually really migrated toward really just taking the score and interpreting that with the patient in the context of their, of their overall um, uh, disease state and really ignoring the reports to a large extent. So you know, that's one comment. The second is, and, and the science is all very similar behind them. In other words, the, the clinical accuracy is probably very similar across the three tests. For those of us in academics, there is a big driver to use Decipher over the others because they're running the whole genome on every clinical specimen. So even though we get the Decipher score, 
we have a full transcriptome in, in our back pocket with every clinical specimen. So again, for the, from a research standpoint, you know, that's been a major driver of big academic practices to choose to cipher over the others, but that's got nothing to do with clinical practice. Yeah, I mean, my, my only other comment would be that Decipher was built on higher risk disease, and, and it was. And so editorially, I, I, I think that I would use that in higher, it, it, was, it was actually, it was a metastasis endpoint for really bad players, okay? And so I wonder whether that can be translated to your low grade or even favorable, you know, three plus four, because a lot of those patients were metastatic. That they that they designed that platform on, so it's a tough one for me. I if the higher the risk, the man, and you're going to hear the next this next section about post prostatectomy, which I think is really, uh, really, you know, where Decipher makes makes the, its most hay. So, for confirm MDX. In the pre-diagnostic setting, I, I know, did you cover confirm? I don't no, recall. I, yeah, confirm is, it's a, very interesting. So confirm is a really yeah. nice test. For those of you, just briefly, man has a biopsy, it's negative biopsy. There's still some question about whether he has prostate cancer. The confirm is sent on that biopsy tissue that you took, and it's on the normal tissue, and they do methylation. It has an MPV, a negative predictive value of over 90%. So in other words, you get a confirm on that negative biopsy tissue. There's no methylation it has, if it's a negative test. It's a, it's a pretty nice tissue-based ancillary test for the diagnosis of prostate cancer. In the, but again, it's only after negative biopsy. And I don't know, we're, we're using it. It's actually really Yeah, we use it as well. Yeah. You can use it on ASAP. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And PIN, I guess, that's what yeah. they're saying now, right? Yeah. You had a question? So um, it's a tough thing. I, I don't think there I don't think there's any great indication unless, again, there there is some data showing now that it can predict the need for hormonal therapy or length of hormonal therapy with radiation. There there's been a couple of papers that have looked at the that the decipher test for that. I agree that I'm not so sure that there's great utility for us surgeons, most of us are surgeons here, uh, in the room necessarily. As an editorial comment to, to Matt's talk, and it's actually on the NCCN guidelines, if you, have a, if you may have a man with a great group of four or five cancer, it's, it's recommended actually to get germline testing now. So I think that's an ancillary test that we should start getting because it could affect things later as well as downstream or cascade testing for their uh, offspring or family. Any other questions? Well, we think that they, there might be some of that eventually at some point in time. I mean, we're, we're starting a platform of studies where we'll take men with Gleason 8, 9, 10 cancer. We're doing their germline. If they have a defect, we're giving them something even before surgery. It happens in other tumors. I mean, again, many of you have family members with lung cancer, colorectal cancer. I mean, we're doing trimodality therapy for most cancers. Why is it that prostate cancer, we say you either get surgery or radiation? It, doesn't make sense to me, but we'll get there eventually. 
Yeah, so oh, do you, Matt, you want to answer? It's a great question. Yeah. If you remember that, that uh, the markers, uh, you know, overview slide, active surveillance is up and up to the right, right? So it, the same principle applies again, that you got to use the clinical information first. So Dan and I actually collaborated together on a, on a paper looking at the Canary uh, Consortium uh, two years ago and published a model looking at, at the clinical variables alone, so things like PSA trends over time, whether you've had negative biopsies after diagnosis, uh, PSA density, or prostate size, um, factors like this, we can already substratify out about a quarter of the men on surveillance to say with 80 to 90% accuracy, you're good for four or five years. So not to say go home and forget about it, you know, we can't yet under, undiagnose some of these guys, which I think we'd like to do, but we are definitely starting to tailor the surveillance intensity based on a deeper look at the clinical information. So then the question becomes, can we do even better with Decipher uh, or Polaris or, or Oncotype? The answer will be almost certainly yes, but we're not there yet. We haven't done the studies yet. I mean, there's, you know, my, my heuristic on this is, okay, today we can find 25% with 80% accuracy. You add a biomarker, if it comes back 16, which it usually doesn't, you know, 16 is a, is a low outlier, that guy's good. Um, you know, he, he could probably practically, practically be on watchful waiting. Um, but I think that the point will be if we get a reassuring marker on top of a good canary model score or whatever it's gonna be, uh, we can stretch that out even further. Yeah, I'm definitely using it. I, if, if I have a guy who has an Oncotype score of 29, so he's just into my, you know, my cutoff personally is 30, that guy might biopsy in a year or two. If he comes back with a score of eight, I might go three, five years, you know, if his MRI and his PSA and his rectal examination stay stable. So I definitely take it into account. But again, there's no firm, here's the algorithm. It's just sort of gestalt, right? Yep. MRIs, too. Yeah, I it's mean. It's a whole different, MRIs yeah, and biopsy but, is a whole different Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think, so I, my personal thinking is MRI performs much differently in active surveillance than a man who's been biopsied multiple times, sampled multiple times, rather than MRI's performance in a you know, undiagnosed patient. And MRI's utility and performance starts to drop off in a man who's had 48 needles put him in over the last few years. It just doesn't work as well, unfortunately, so. Although interestingly, I mean, this, we, we had a paper out from the ECSF cohort two years ago, and there was just an abstract yesterday along very much the same lines that the, so just to step back, the music consortium in Michigan, you know, their, their quality measure now is you need to do a confirmatory test within a year, but they are accepting MR and genomics as a surrogate for biopsy within a year, which personally I don't think we're there with the data. So MR specifically, uh, for that first confirmatory biopsy, the negative predictive value for MR was only in the 70s, and if you have a high PSA density, it was in like the 50s. Um, but that's for the first confirmatory test. Now once you get into surveillance, you got a couple biopsies under your belt. Um, at that point, if the MR is negative, the NPV is much higher. And if you've got a, you know, two biopsies already done, third one comes up, MR is negative, and the PSA density is low, then the negative predictive value for the MR is in the is in the It's very high, it's over, so, nine, it's over 90%. So, but it's a long answer because it's getting much more tailored and it's getting much more, you know, even everybody, everybody's got their protocol. We haven't used the UCSF protocol in, in like a decade. You know, these things really get very much, you know, at the point of care uh, tailored, which is appropriate, but it also makes it harder to study. Yeah, and I'll refer you to their AUA guidelines. So the AUA guidelines that just came out last week says, MRI cannot replace a surveillance biopsy, very clearly, okay, very, very clearly, so. Great. All right, so we're back to our index case. So the gentleman uh, had an oncotype test, but GPS was 42, so that's above my cutoff of 30. So he undergoes a radical prostatectomy, he has some unfavorable features. 
Uh, he's extra capsular disease and he has a positive margin. So quick show of hands, how many people in the audience would give this gentleman adjuvant radiation therapy based on three randomized prospective trials, which we usually use as the standard of care? And how many would observe based on studies like radicals and raves? And how many would order molecular testing? Great. All right, so I'm gonna step in for uh, Dave. Dave would have had no disclosures, I already gave mine. So, a uh, gentleman undergoes a radical prostatectomy, and then the question that you have when you're sitting with, sitting with that gentleman that we just discussed as our index case in the office is, early radiation therapy, be that early salvage or adjuvant or observation, and if the gentleman has recurred, what's your treatment intensity? And again, right now we're making these decisions based on typical clinical parameters, Already went through these slides, talking about Decipher again, the endpoint is metastasis, and the report looks very similar to the biopsy report. And it's a continuum, zero to 1.0. And after surgery, if you have someone who has a high risk Decipher score, which is 0 0.60 or above, that's a gentleman that you might want to consider for early radiation therapy. Whereas if they're a lower risk score, and I usually personally include the intermediates in that group, you're moving toward um, observation. If you've done a radical prostatectomy and the PSA rises, again, we can get a, into probably a half hour debate about what's your definition of a PSA recurrence, uh, but now you've decided that that gentleman needs salvage therapy, are you going to give him radiation alone? Or would you give him radiation with ADT, which is really currently the standard of care based on RTOG 9601 and GETIG uh, 16. Number of studies, these are all in your PDFs. Um, so any of these you want to look at to see the really hardcore evidence-based uh, literature, I would encourage you to. So this is a study um, that came from DEN. I personally have this in my EPIC to show patients. And what they did is they took their patients that had adverse features, and what they found was if they had a low Decipher score, it didn't matter if those gentlemen received their early salvage or adjuvant radiation therapy for a PSA less than 0.2, which is traditionally sort of the surgical threshold for cure, although I think most of us are sort of lowering that threshold. But if they had a high Decipher score, the men who got their radiation before the 0.2 cutoff did better than if you waited after the 0.2 cutoff. And it was really this study, I think, that uh, enabled Decipher to get their approval really from the government for coverage pretty early because the thought process, I think, was that with all these guys, and in my clinic right now, the gentleman I operate on, it's about a 45% adverse pathology feature rate. It's really high. So if you're gonna radiate all those guys, it's a lot of money. But if you can sort of tease out who really needs it and doesn't, that might be a good test. And I think that's how it got approved. I don't know, and again, with the show of hands, I don't know how much people are really doing that. A lot of us are sort of observing and then going the early route. The group at Jefferson, and Dennis from Jefferson as well, they looked at it a slightly different way, sort of prospective, but not entirely. And what they did is they said, okay, you have adverse features and now we're getting a decipher test on you. If you have a good decipher test, you don't get radiation. If you have a bad one, you do. But patients obviously you know, hear our recommendations and then they do what they think is best. And what they found was if you have a low or intermediate decipher score, if you follow the recommendation of observation or you got treatment, it didn't matter. Right? Those guys do okay. 
But if you had a high decipher score and you listened to them and you received treatment, you did better than if you didn't listen to them. So it's another way, I think, of, of showing that the higher risk men probably deserve treatment a little bit um, earlier. And again, uh, some other studies sort of supporting this that I'll just breeze through in the, in, in the you know, just to stay on time. So we looked at our cohort at our institution with 203 um, radical prostatectomies with adverse pathology. In most institutions, the chances of having a high decipher score on that cohort is about 45% or 40% rather. Ours, it's 63%. And that's been over the years. For whatever reason, I have a higher rate of high decipher scores. A lot of those guys develop biochemical recurrence within the first 20 months, and we define biochemical recurrence very strictly. They had to have an undetectable PSA. And what we found was that a high decipher score was associated with earlier salvage radiation therapy, and a higher decipher score was associated with traditional salvage. Now, this is a little bit self-predictive, right, because I'm ordering the test, and then I'm sort of doing what it says. But it also shows that the guys are listening to this, believing me, um, but also Decipher wasn't designed to predict biochemical recurrence. It's for metastasis, but it's part of the pathway. You would sort of expect these, expect these outcomes. So here's a gentleman who has extracapsular disease. You see his um, clinical parameters, and you see him postoperatively, run a Decipher on him, and it's 0 0.30. So in my clinic, what I do with that gentleman is I watch him, and if his PSA two years later starts to creep up at 0 0.03, 0 0.06, I sit tight. He's continent, has Metz and Metz erections. I'm gonna wait until his PSA hits 0 0.20 because the studies sort of support doing that. If I have another gentleman uh, who has a decipher score of 0 0.80, same sort of parameters, and his PSA is undetectable for nine months, and in a year, it's 0 0.03, and then it's 0 0.05, and he's doing well clinically with his continence, I'm going to offer that gentleman salvage therapy. And right now, in my clinic, 80% of patients receive their radiation therapy in a salvage setting with a PSA less than 0 0.20, as opposed to, to, to years past. So once you've decided that someone deserves salvage uh, radiation therapy, Decipher can also help you, perhaps, decide on treatment intensification. So this is the RTOG 9601 trial that a lot of people are familiar with that supports adding androgen deprivation therapy to radiation in a salvage setting. What Decipher did is they took that cohort and they ran Decipher on it. And what they found was if you had a low Decipher score as opposed to a high Decipher score, your chances of developing metastasis in the gentleman that had the higher scores was 11.2% as opposed to 0.4%. And again, this was a randomized trial, ADT, no ADT. And it was really, even in the overall survival, if you had a low decipher score, receiving ADT was actually detrimental. So the idea behind this study is maybe we can tease out those gentlemen that resulted in a positive RTOG 9601 study supporting androgen deprivation therapy to tease out who really needs it. So here's a gentleman who had a positive surgical margin, grade group um, two disease, his post-op PSA is 0 0.25, he's a non-nader. His um, decipher score is 0 0.30, so he deserves radiation therapy with that PSA, his metastatic evaluation is negative, but maybe you give him radiation alone and if you had a gentleman who had a higher decipher score, that gentleman might receive a short course of um, androgen deprivation therapy. 
So again, multiple studies, you know, looking at this arena. In the NCCN guidelines currently, um, Decipher is recommended to inform adjuvant treatment if adverse features are found post-RP. Um, and as a footnote, it can, can be considered in the um, post-RP salvage setting. So again, footnote, but recommended now for your adverse um, features. And again, just to show you the, the pathway, uh, bad pathology, post-operative visit, are you going to observe or radiate? And if you've decided that the patient needs salvage radiation therapy, is it going to be radiation therapy alone or radiation therapy with androgen deprivation therapy? So Prolaris can also be used in the post-prostatectomy setting. Um, Dan already told you the sort of um, outcomes and, and how the test is used, but you get a Prolaris score. And this is clinically validated uh, to determine your 10-year risk of biochemical uh, recurrence. So when you combine the cell cycle progression score, I find this a little confusing when I'm looking at the paper. So the CCP is cell cycle progression. CCR is when you combine the cell cycle progression with the CAPRA. So it's combining the, the sort of molecular score with clinical factors. So Prolaris does that. Oncotype does that. Decipher does not incorporate the NCCN. So that's one of the answers to the uh, test question. So a lot of published data on this in the post-prostatectomy setting. Again, another article um, from Matt pu published in JCO. And what it showed was that the CCP combined with uh, CAPRA, so that's the CCR, predicts biochemical recurrence and it may improve the accuracy of risk stratification beyond CAPRA, and that's what we're talking about. All these tests, if they're gonna be useful, has to do something a little bit better than we can do with the clinical parameters. Uh, Swanson, in 2021, showed that Prolaris post-prostatectomy predicted both metastasis and death. So this is beyond the biochemical, biochemical recurrence. And then Troke looked at 209 patients in 2021, again showing that the, um, the CCR was strongly prognostic. And I thought that, um, that this was an interesting study. It was showing it sort of in a different way. But if you were post-prostatectomy, your chances of metastasis-free survival with a cutoff of 2.42 seemed to be the right cutoff. And that was validated. And when you combine that study with the Swanson study, they cross over in between two and three, right? So that 2.24 number seems to be a very validated um, number, both by the Troke study on its own, but when you look at it compared to Swanson, right, for the lower ones, one says, oh, you're gonna do a little worse than we think than the other, and then, the, and then they sort of cross at that point. So that seems to be a good cutoff point for Polaris to decide on maybe earlier salvage um, therapy. So to summarize um, Prolaris in the post-prostatectomy setting, it further stratifies patients within each risk category. It identifies many intermediate and high-risk patients without additional high-risk pathologic features that are at high risk for both biochemical recurrence, metastasis, and death. And those are the gentlemen you might want to consider adjuvant therapy, if you believe in that, or early salvage therapy, which is what I tend to do more with PSAs that are lower in the 0 0.05, 0.09 .09 range. It's prognostic. Prolaris post-RP was a dominant and co-dominant prognosticator of uh, all the parameters that we just talked about. So questions about any of these tests in the post-prostatectomy setting, how we use them, what are we doing adjuvant or salvage? I have a question for both you guys or anybody else. 
So a patient has favorable pathology, Decipher score off the chart low, like fifth percentile, and PSA keeps going up. After surgery. After surgery. Do we, are there other patients who we can just say, go home, never check another PSA, oh. you are cured? Wait, so he had, why did I get the Decipher? It was on his biopsies, or where was, why did I? We got a lot of them just to kind of populate the. the oh. No, and actually, no, and actually when PSA, no, I'm sorry, what I'm thinking about when PSA started rising, we got the Decipher. Oh, then you get it. So if his PSA is 0 0.05, 0 0.05, I think we got the decipher, let's say, at 0 0.5, something like that. At 0.5. PSA, PSMA negative uh, repeatedly, and now the PSA is 5. So 5.0? 5.0. Oh. Decipher very low. Has not wanted radiation. You know, favorable pathology. What do we do? So I guess, so I think I would want him to get radiation if he had no metastasis. I probably would still want that. Then the question in my head would be, do I want ADT, given that low decipher? Based on some of these studies, I guess you could suggest no. And then it would depend how far out he is from surgery sort of plays a little bit of a role in my decision too. Years, yeah. I would probably, well years, then I'm more apt to do radiation alone than I am adding the ADT. And then you throw the decipher in there too. I'd probably just give him radiation. Dan, what would you do? Yeah, I would have given radiation a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, I, we had that conversation, Peter, but you know, Peter, Carol, our place led a multi-institutional study talking about the overdiagnosis of recurrent prostate cancer. This was with Rizetzioni at Fertouch. Something like 30% of men with a PSA recurrence just have a PSA recurrence, and nobody ever died of a PSA. So, you know, it has, I don't think we've got data, but it has always intrigued me to consider if you've got good pathology and a good genomic score, are there men that we can just say you are done and not follow them for the rest of their life with, uh, with zero PSAs? Uh, I, don't, I don't think we have the data yet, but it's a, it's a place that I think that yeah. Yeah. markers can help us down the road. So, yes, because of those adjuvant or the adjuvant prospective trials, and I tell patients about that, but then I tell them about the other um, trials, and then I tell them I would rather on that gentleman get a decipher. So I do routinely on the, on the high-risk gentleman. And then if your PSA twitches, I'm going to recommend salvage therapy for you. And if you stay zero forever, you're cured. I don't care how high your decipher is. So that's what I do. So I don't do adjuvant personally. I offer it, and the, occasionally a gentleman wants it and jumps at it, but not very often. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the stepping back, you know, the pattern of failure for someone that's Gleason 9 and that bad days is like that is not usually just local only. And so I'd rather not just give adjuvant because most of them are giving prostate bed only, maybe a little bit of pelvic. I'd rather wait for a bowel or occurrence because it's usually going to be distant, uh, distant failure, in which case then we can start thinking about other things. PSMA PET, we'll find a node. The last thing I want to do is give the guy your pelvic radiation and just barely miss that node that's right out of the field. I, not to say that I have data to support it, but I think the field now is going more towards image, you know, p uh, PET imaging for recurrences rather than just give everybody radiation and blast everything. So I think we're going to get to the point where we're, we're going to be much more sensitive and specific and, and, and personalized. I'm going to ask you a question. I want to ask him one, though, first, if I can be rude and hop ahead. Yeah. Trouble getting them? Like, I have a lot of companies now are using a PSA cutoff of either 0 0.5, 1.0, and 2.0, and it takes a peer-to-peer -peer for me to find out that that's their cutoff, which they could have just told my nurse and spared me a phone call. Are you guys able to get them? I'm having trouble with like a PS, 
you know, PSA 0.23. Yeah. He needs treatment. I can't even get a PSMA. You guys or no? Well, we're, pro we're doing it locally. So, yeah, we have a generator. What we're doing, if we can't, we're just doing it on, a, on, a, on our own machine mm -hmm. but, uh, and do it under research protocol. I've had a few times where it's a problem, but I haven't had anybody pushing back at a, at a, at a threshold of even 0.25. So. Yeah, we do. And you? Uh, we're the same. We yeah. Tom Hope. Lucky. We do it in-house, but um, the peer to peers are... Torture. All right, I'm sorry, oh, question. Peer to peer. It is. Yes. Yeah. It is. For sure. No, those. Yep. Some of those are destroyed by cautery. Some of them are false positive. Some of them are. I mean, there's, there's, you know, undetectable ultra-sensitive PSA is an unbelievably good negative rate to value for, for clinically significant persistence. All right. So we'll just finish with the index case. We had another case, but it was. I think this is much better having all the interaction during the yeah. the, the yeah. course. Uh, but this gentleman had a positive margin, like we said, extra capsular disease. I did a decipher, it was 0.76. His PSA was detectable for a year and a half, but then he went from 0.03 to 0.04 to 0.07. So it's real, it's climbing, it's not a lab error. So he received salvage radiation therapy, and based on some of the studies we showed, uh, I also gave him a six-month course of antigen deprivation therapy. So really want to uh, thank everyone for their participation in today's course. Strongly encourage you to fill out the evaluations, chance to win a free trip to, uh, or at least free registration, not a free trip, that's a little strong. Uh, free registration for Chicago, and um, also fill out your post-test questionnaire, perhaps a $150 visa card, and we'll be up here for a few minutes, happy to answer any more questions.